Open the Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The biggest, baddest nature conference happens on February 23rd. It's the Wild Things Conference. Plant nerds, bird geeks, restoration junkies all come together for a day of presentations. The topics are as diverse as nature itself. We're going to talk about the Wild Things Conference with some of the key participants. Stephen Packard is here. He is a conservation entrepreneur, and he is the guy who started the Volunteer Stewardship Network that's transforming our forest preserves. He is the steward at the Somme Prairie Grove, author of the Tallgrass Restoration Handbook, the Bible of Restoration, Prairie Restoration in this area. Great to see you, Stephen. I like your summary of wild things, which is uh, surprising in its diversity and in addition to all the wonderful sessions that are going on all day long, more than 175 sessions, one of the most important things about it is you meet some of the greatest people in the world. There will be thousands of local volunteers, activists, professional scientists, conservationists, and we get together once every two Years So this is a big meeting of the clans of the environment. How did this thing come about? Where did Wild Things Community start? Well, it actually changed my life. I went to one, I think it was 1978, uh, the second or third that ever came. And there was a professor, a student of the grade Aldo Leopold, the environmental prophet of the Midwest, who said, we need constituency and this isn't just for professionals. It's for everybody. So let's build volunteerism, get the community together, and have something where there's a real exchange among people. And we'll have this big conference, and it's been going two years ever since. And it is really awesome that you can rub shoulders with a top scientist from the Field Museum and a guy who has been studying bugs on his own for 30 years. And they both make presentations, and you can have your mind blown a million different ways. Let me give you some examples of the breadth of uh, sessions that you get to choose from all day long. Lessons on propagating rare plants, climate advocacy in the Midwest, Bumblebee biology, the tall grass prairie, grocery store, apothecary, and love shop, bird migration around Chicago, environmental protection through stand-up comedy, how to use warrior sedges to fight against wetland invasives, using the iNaturalist app, Baltimore checker spot butterflies, mark and recapture study, habitat potential of post-industrial landscapes. Monarch Butterfly Conservation, Turning Buckthorn into Toys and Kids into <laughs> Stewards. And it just goes on all day long. And you meet community groups. The community Absolutely. groups that are doing the work are making presentations as well. You see them from Little Village. You see them from the northwest suburbs, the southwest suburbs. And they all get to meet each other. There's a community of people here, the likes of which we need around the world. And to some extent, we're providing models that more and more people are following. Everyone says, we should save the rainforests, and we need to save the rainforests. But people say they should save the rainforests. And for the conservation that needs to be done around here, the they is us. And there are thousands of people here setting an example of ecosystems that are so rare, we don't have 50% left or 10% or 1%. In the case of the prairie, we have one hundredth of 1% left 
of the savanna, even less. Uh, woodlands about equally rare, and yet people are taking a few acres and expanding it to 10 and then 100 and then 1,000. The animals come back, the plants come back, and it's a wonderful thing. It inspires us, and anybody can take part in it. I mentioned that you've been volunteering in our forest preserve since 1977, so you have seen this thing happen, this transformation of land and plants. Yeah, for me and many people, when you get started on something, and some people move from project to project and try this and that, but once you adopt something and stick with it, it's sort of like having a child or a few children, and you watch them in their first difficult early years, and then as this recovering ecosystem, sometimes starting from very little comes back to life almost like uh, magic. It's almost like this embryo that just starts to develop and from little bits of what's left of the ecosystem grows and grows. The salamanders multiply, the orchids multiply, the oaks start to come back. Birds winter in the tropics come back and raise their babies here and it's all part of this wonderful complicated thing which as one ecologist said, is more complicated than we think and more complicated than we can think, except when you put many minds of many people who are all part of this community, somebody's thinking about the butterflies, somebody's thinking about the sedges, somebody's thinking about uh, how to bring up kids from the surrounding communities that they care about it. Gradually, we have an ecosystem that works for the planet. I'm talking with Stephen Packard. He is with the Wild Things Conference. It's happening on February 23rd. It's a gigantic collection of plant nerd, bird geeks, restoration junkies, and you can get more information at the wildthingscommunity.org website. And we are lucky to have with us the keynote speaker for the event, and he's somebody you've known very much over the years. Uh, A great hero. We are so honored to have him. Gary Nabhan is a desert restoration ecologist. He is a seed-saving guy. He (laughs) he started a seed-saving organization in Arizona, originally from Gary. and Local um, boy makes good. Local boy makes good. Tell me something else about him. Well, Gary studied religion as a young person and then decided the best way to do the good, the true, and the beautiful was to pay attention to plants, animals, their relationship with indigenous people, their relationship with children, and he started writing books. And he's written more than 20 books, many of them very influential So we're just proud, honored, and excited to drag him back to Chicago to be the keynote speaker. Gary's latest book is Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Land and Communities. Gary Nabhan, thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, great to be with you and Steve as we get ready for wild things. How did the journey start for you, someone from Gary, Indiana, to become a desert restoration ecologist? Gary, Indiana is a great place to grow up because you have sand dunes rather than cornfields all around you. And you sort of learn that there's a special place in the world on Lake Michigan that deserves our attention and our care. And so as a 15-year-old, I joined the Save the Dunes Council. And whenever I saw bulldozers moving in a way that would destroy sand dunes plants, I dug them up and transplanted them. 
And 50 years later, I'm still involved in uh, plant restoration and seed saving and all of that, uh, inspired by the dunes on the southern shores of Lake Michigan. When did food become such an important part of your thing? Well, my grandfather was a Syrian immigrant or refugee from the Bekaa Valley and what's now Lebanon. And he taught me a lot about fruit while he had his fruit peddling business along the Great Lakes from uh, Benton Harbor, Michigan, all the way over to Chicago. But I realized that we sort of neglect the restoration that needs to be done in our farmlands and foodscapes. And we can't continue to eat good, healthy, nutritious, and delicious foods unless we pay attention to those landscapes, not just to truly wilderness landscapes. More than that, I think we need to involve the agricultural and horticultural public in our restoration work with nature. We can't have farming is bad, so let's ignore it. Uh, uh, Nature is good. We need to infect uh, farmers and orchard keepers uh, with the excitement about bringing back pollinators and native cover crops and uh, prairie plants onto our farmlands. It's a beautiful vision. It's a wonderful uh, vision. And it's been a pleasure to watch Gary develop it over the years. In Chicago, one of the reasons he's excited to do it is that we have these thousands of people who are, uh, like Gary and me, is part of the team who are committed to doing this and who are out working, many of them, every weekend, all winter long, spring, summer, and fall. On Saturday or Sunday, it's one of their cultural institutions. They go out and cut brush and feed the bonfire in the winter and uh, in the spring plant seeds and in the summers monitor, learn how to do scientific studies and watch the ecosystem recover. And we have these forest preserves. There was something remarkable about uh, Chicago. There's no place in the world had urban forest preserves. That The idea was to preserve, protect, restore, and restock the natural ecosystem as near as may be, it said, when the legislation was passed in 1915. And so there's this heritage that was started by Jane Addams and Jens Jensen and Frank Lloyd Wright and uh, Dwight Perkins long ago and continued decade after decade that really gave Chicago an opportunity to offer something to the planet and in the meantime have people enjoy it, have fun doing it, and it become uh, central to many people's lives just like maybe Little League or Bridge or Church or the neighborhood council is just one section of organized humanity that makes the culture rich and the ecosystem rich and gives people friends, contacts. So people end up having rich feelings for the community and for the ecosystem locally and the planet. What does the kind of community building Stephen is talking about uh, look like there in Arizona, Gary? And you've been involved with this for a long time there, and you've started a, a seed bank collective there and all sorts of things. You've seen the same thing. 
Well, what I see when we restore diversity, whether it's in the Midwest or in the Southwest, is that we're also restoring our human communities. We're working together across uh, racial lines, across urban-rural divides, and across faith versus science divides. And it's the community that has been built by being involved in this kind of long-term restoration that I think has a chance to restore America so that we're not so divided. We see this divide every time we turn on TV, but the counter movement to that are the people that work together across all of those divides, urban and rural, uh, immigrant and indigenous, to find our mutual respect for one another through seeing each other's talents and skill sets and values when we work together in the field, whether it's burning a prairie or planting uh drought-adapted plants, or bringing back pollinators. And so there's incredible importance to this constituency that Wild Things has built over the years because it's really the kind of social capital that can help heal the wounds in America. Gary, your talk at Wild Things is going to be restoring nature, food, and justice. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is that when we really start to work together in collaborative conservation movements, we realize that it's not just about recovering rare plants, but recovering that equity and justice between us of reducing the disparities between the rich and the poor, the privileged and the landless. We need to see how bringing back not just wild nature, but food-producing landscapes can sort of help heal the historic wounds that we see around so many cities, whether it's Ferguson, Missouri, or or uh, South Chicago, or uh, Charlottesville. We need all of us to be rowing in the same direction. And restoration is one of those practices that teaches us how to work together over the long haul and respect one another. It can't be done by politicians. We have to do it ourselves. What does the restoration and the food situation look like there in Arizona? Because it sounds like you've been dealing with a lot of different things. Uh, Native American seed recovery, you've been contrasting that with the enormous amount of food production that goes on in Mexico nearby and comes up through Arizona. There's a food economy there that's really unusual. I don't think most people here know what's going on there. That's right. We have a binational food system that passes through my county near Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora, right on the border, that provides about 80% of the green leafy vegetables and eggplants and peppers and tomatoes that the whole continent eats during the winter months. And with all the border problems that we're seeing, the immigration debate, the debate about the wall, we're seeing that thousands of people care about this biological region, this eco-region that the border runs through and cares about the communities on both sides and knows that wildlife needs habitat on both sides of the border. So we've just released a thing called the Mesquite Manifesto, 
that's exactly in line with this new Green Deal proposal that we're hearing from Congresswoman uh, Sorio Ortiz that we're really trying to say, let's develop jobs in a restoration economy that reduces the disparities between the two sides of the border and creates jobs by restoring the food producing landscape and producing unique healthy food products right here in the borderlands. So it's a big vision of how to deal with inequalities, job creation, ecological restoration, and healthy foods for our youth and elders all at the same time. I'm talking with Gary Nabhan. He is a desert restoration ecologist, and he's an author of more than 20 books. The latest one is Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Land and Communities. He's doing the keynote at the Wild Things Conference that is going on on February 23rd, an all-day conference of nature lovers in the Chicago area. Gary's talk is about restoring nature, food, and justice in our communities. It's so interesting hearing you talk about these local issues that you have that are international in nature, that affect our food supply here in Chicago. I think we don't feel the connection when we walk into the store to to the kind of things you're talking about. That's where the community comes in. We've got to have some community that weaves us together in a productive manner. You're exactly right about that. And also when we know the story behind our food, whose hands have been on it, where it comes from, when we can imagine those places and evaluate whether they're healthy from the way we grow the food or whether they've been degraded. Our whole eating experience is a lot deeper. So the stories of food in the land are part of this. And many of the people that Steve and others have brought into wild things are great storytellers. They're not only to engage, but even enrage and inspire and help people conspire with one another. So it's really that we get our energy pumped up and our empathy for one another pumped up. And we see how the whole is always greater than the sum of the parts. So Stephen and I are both doing sessions at the conference. I'm talking to in a conversation like I do on a regular basis, the guy who was the Illinois climatologist for 30 years, he just retired. He wrote the Midwest section for the National Climate Report. I'll be doing a session there. Stephen, what are your sessions? Well, I'm doing uh, one on bird habitat and the forest preserves. I'm doing one on restoring endangered plant species. I'm doing one on building community and I want to encourage people who have any interest at all in whether you're interested in watching birds or hugging trees or just being part of something that has really great potential. Many people are casting around for, how do I want to spend my life? I like to have a job doing this stuff. And you can go to school and study it, but there's nothing like making connections and meeting people. And more and more people are needed as volunteers and professionals. And this is a major place to meet them. Go to the website, wildthings.org. Check it out. You can register online. That helps us plan the day. Or you can just show up and uh, register when you get there. And we love to meet new people. There will be thousands of people there Um, Check it out and see where you might fit in. Yeah, it's a great thing because nature doesn't demand a 
PhD. You can go and just start doing it. And I love hearing a gentle voice like Gary's saying he's looking to enrage people. His <laughs> gentle enraging is profound. Gary, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, your piece of the Wild Things Conference and giving us some idea of what's going on with Desert Restoration Ecology uh, there in Arizona. Gary Nabhan is going to be the keynote speaker at Wild Things. His talk is Restoring Nature, Food, and Justice. It'll kick things off. And the Wild Things Conference is February 23rd. It is at the Donald Stevens Convention Center this you, you time. You can get there by L. You can get there by Plenty almost of anything. <laughs> and by plane. By plane. You can jet into O'Hare and jump right in. <laughs> Check it out at wildthingscommunity.org. There are student rates available, and there are some zero-cost scholarships available as well. Scholarships.wildthingsatgmail.com. If you want more information about a scholarship to Wild Things, scholarships.wildthingsatgmail.com. And WBEZ is a media sponsor of the Wild Things Conference, and I'm looking forward to it on February 23rd at the Donald Stevens Center. And thanks a lot for joining us and talking with us, Stephen Packard and Gary Nabhan. Jerome, thank see, you so much. And see you there among the wild thingamabobs. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we'll continue our series on science and power politics. This time we uncover the biases of biology. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week, we bring you a series of conversations on the intersection of science and power politics. Biology is one of the sciences that has had an outsized, albeit invisible, influence on our social hierarchy. Shea Keel McLean is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Illinois. He studies how the field of biology has led to racist, sexist, homophobic, and colonial ideologies. They're all tied in with a phenomenon called essentialism. Worldview's Julian Haida recently spoke with a self-styled hood biologist. What is essentialism and why does it matter? So essentialism is basically the belief that every species has a particular essential characteristic. And those characteristics are unalternable. You can't change them. And there's no way of escaping them. It's actually a concept that Western European thinkers got from Aristotle, his general idea of the political animal, which mainly is the idea that only certain individuals are capable of participating in politics and in government and most importantly in self-governance. Was that just the environment of the time and how's that kind of held over? 
It's part of the environment at the time, particularly in regards to the political structure in Greece. And Aristotle's idea of who was capable of being a political animal is what's most important and what in a lot of ways seeps over into the ways we interact with each other today when it comes to modern day politics. His idea that a political animal was specifically man. And by man, he didn't mean people. He meant men. Greek men. Specifically, you had to speak Greek and you had to be a man. Women were considered animals who were incapable of governing themselves. And just like any other kind of barbarian, which was someone who didn't speak Greek. Like, who is in our modern day and age essentialized? Who is pointed out by their biology and, and kind of reduced to like, an essentialist identity? Well, we can see that in a number of different cases. A lot of different political contestations of the day are grounded in ideas about somebody's biology defining their destiny and who they are, their capabilities, and whether or not they're good at something or not. Race, gender, sexuality. We see this happening on a regular basis with ability as well, with individuals who are disabled. So in a lot of ways, we actually use essentialism on a regular basis, and we don't know it. What what are, what are some examples? The different systems, for example, racism, patriarchy, capitalism, ableism, all these things are actually influencing who has a right to what access, who's capable of achieving what, and doing what they need to to take care of themselves on a regular basis. Eventually, this does trickle down to what resources we have access to in regards to food we eat, where we live, whether or not that is closer to environmental toxicants. We've seen that um, Black and um, Latinx neighborhoods are more likely to live closer to neighborhood toxicants. And poor people are more likely to live closer to it. So the chances that we have at a particular quality of life and how long that life is drastically ends up impacting where we are in society as well, what we're capable of doing. So it's a boomerang. Hmm. Instead of it being just biology defining it, well, the way we treat one another is what ends up having an impact on our biology. And it does trickle down. So it has biological consequences instead of it being kind of the other way around where it's these primordial forms of difference that we can't escape. Sure. You know, I don't think anybody would argue that income is correlated with, say, living next to, uh, you know, a fracking site or a power plant. And that has adverse health effects. But people also make a claim for genetic predisposition. You know, it'll say, um, you know, skin conditions or, or something like that. And then they expand on that. Does that provide a slippery slope to racism? It does, in a number of cases, provide a slippery slope to racism. Because the general assumption that we make in a lot of those conversations is that one disease is drastically going to be driven and determined by having one specific allele or a gene. You have this particular gene, and then it gives you this predisposition. But in a lot of cases, we've seen that that's not how all diseases work. There was some research work that was done, I believe it was in 2009. Dorothy Roberts talks about this in Fatal Invention. Research work that was done looking at having a particular trait and whether or not it puts you at a greater risk of having coronary heart failure. And what the researchers found was that what actually predicted the chances or likelihood of having coronary heart failure was your family history. Whether or not you had the gene or the trait, the allele was actually irrelevant. It didn't predict anything. So in a lot of cases, what we're missing is a lot of contextual information. So we end up going on this slippery slope. We're going like, well, you have this particular trait and it's associated with this specific things. And the reason why it ends up being slippery slope for racism is because our general idea about basically who people are and what's likely going to end up happening in their life is drastically shaped by this political contestation. 
that ends up being blanketed all the way down to the genetic level, that these things are genetic, when race as a political system is actually starkingly new. Mm. It doesn't have the same relationship to every disease that we assume it does. The same way we go, oh, people can make the assumption that black people have a higher risk of having high blood pressure. Well, the reasons behind that are actually going to be a consequence of how they're treated in society, not simply about having a gene. Can white people get high blood pressure? Yes, it happens all the time. Mm. (laughs) But we end up missing out those nuances. We can't see them. And there's a number of different biological anthropologists who've done research work on just that, that you actually can't see associations between particular disease, quote-unquote traits or genes, alleles, if you're ignoring how racism works, how people are being treated. You won't even see an association. So a lot of these things are manifesting as a consequence of the way that we shape the environment. Like, how do we treat one another every day? That's an ecological environment. I'm Julian Haida, and with me is Shay Akil McLean. He's an activist and a Ph.D. candidate who studies the impact of intersectional inequality on human biology. His website is decolonizeallthethings.com. Your website is called Decolonize All the Things. And, of course, you work in the field of science. To kind of shift gears, how can science in itself as a field be colonizing? Yeah, science in and of itself is an industry, a tool, a method. And as an industry, a tool and a method, it also it's a thing that has a history, right? So when we actually look at the history of scientific knowledge, of institutions of knowledge and how knowledge is produced, we constantly find that it was generally utilized and it discovered, quote unquote, the many things that it discovered within the context of Euro-Western colonialism. Prior to modernity, where we were referred to as science, we referred to as studying a particular kind of life phenomena. Yes, in a number of different ways, but distinctively, what we know now as science in and of itself is what we see as the consequence of the Enlightenment, which some people place at starting around the 1500s up into the 18th century, which was part of what was challenging some of Aristotle's philosophical concepts of political animal. And the work that was done to study life itself and to categorize it was something that was also done in concert with deciding who had rights to do what within a society. So what we see as, for example, our concepts of Darwinian evolutionary thought, they were also developed at the same time of a number of different revolutionary changes in society. The French Revolution, the context of Euro-Western colonialism is riddled throughout that. But someone can take a look at this and be like, hey, that was a long time ago. How does the way that science is produced and the scientific method as it's applied today or even in the last generation contributes to the perpetuation of biological essentialism, whether that's with regards to how gender is treated and with regards to how race is treated? Well, in a lot of ways, people can make the argument that they think that the way science is practiced today actually doesn't produce all of those problems. But that assumption is actually extremely dangerous. Science is dangerous just like any tool without ethical practice. And unfortunately, we are still facing a lot of the same problems that perpetuate those forms of differentiation and hegemony in science today. It happens in classrooms. It happens in labs. It happens in institutions. What are are some Uh, examples of that? Some examples that we can see, for instance, we still have problems with regards to the fact that black and Latinx children, when they go to the hospital and they're in pain, they're either not prescribed pain medication or prescribed less. 
physicians are still trained to be under the impression that people of color experience less pain or are considered solely always addicts. Where does that even come from, though? A lot of those ideas come from uh, like the history of medicine itself, specifically Western medicine. Those racist ideologies are still perpetuated in the way that we practice medicine. The assumptions that we make about why certain people have certain conditions are generally attached to those social political statuses as well. And is that kind of an implicit bias? Is that something that you know a doctor is like, cognizant of? Or is it something a little bit more systemic um it's systemic we generally refer to it as implicit bias in regards to like biomedical research that i've seen in this general oh they didn't know they were socialized we produce knowledge to design a syllabus to teach someone a particular form of standard of medical care and practice is a very active decision it's a very conscious activity to do in and of itself so at some point somebody is systemically conscious of what they're doing or creating a standards or medical practice or how they're training their physicians so in a lot of cases even though we refer to it as something like people really don't know well why aren't we creating an environment where knowing is important or knowing and finding out and asking questions and looking for context is important because that is generally referred to to some extent as a better medical practice to look at race and see, well, this particular group is predisposed to this and not interrogating the predisposition itself. Because the notion of predisposition is was really dangerous. How they arrived there has a large historical context that we can't escape, even though we attempt to. Like science will not escape its history. Why? Because science is a human practice. Humans cannot escape their history. And the fact that we keep trying to is one of the main reasons why we continue to have the problems that we do. We can't just brush these things under the rug. They are the context that we need to design better solutions for our problems. And sometimes those solutions for our problems is changing procedures and policies or the way that we practice something, not necessarily an actual piece of technology. What's another example of ways that people read essentialism uh, with regards to gender and race and just create these kinds of assumptions uh, in the scientific field? Well, specifically when it comes to gender, my experiences of being trans and in the academy and a scientist, <laughs> assumptions about gender is generally about competency. And the same thing goes with race. Both of these political statuses in and of themselves question the competency of those who are not cishet middle-class men. Those individuals do not regularly get questioned. They're given more room and leeway to make mistakes then we have these issues with regards to the fact that people are being treated unfairly and this ends up leaking into what kind of science we research in the first place. So whose problems are we trying to solve? Whose questions are we concerned with answering? And generally, it's not the questions that women and queer people are concerned with asking, the questions that people of color are concerned with asking and the problems that they face regularly in their neighborhoods. These things leak all the way from the academy and the way knowledge is produced. The questions we ask, they leak into our policy. They leak into the way we treat one another in labs, in the academy, outside of it. And also, one of the, a big problem, too, when it comes to questioning that competency, it's about a series of assumptions of you don't really know your body, own body, and its limits. Because a woman is considered limited by her emotion. A woman is considered limited by these particular assumptions that people make like about Victorian womanhood. So in a lot of cases, when people go, oh, those things are in the past, are they? Because we're carrying them on today. It's a quite old tradition that we still are considerably invested in. I'm Julian Haida, and with me is Shay Akil McLean. 
He's an uh, activist and PhD candidate who studies the impact of intersectional inequality on human biology. And his website is decolonizeallthethings.com. So how can we begin to understand the pitfalls of essentialism and this kind of fiction of a disembodied or mythical science in its own right uh, that is not influenced by social factors? Well, in a lot of ways, what they require is is first acknowledging the damage that has already been done. And then in assessing and acknowledging that gives you the opportunity to assess the problem, the nature of the problem, like who's affected in what way, who's vulnerable in in what way. That's one of the reasons why I always tell people that history is extremely important. It's composed of struggles, strategies, and tactics. It provides us the information that we need so we can actually do better. But it also requires a particular sense of reflexivity and responsibility. And that's where, in many extents, also ethics comes in. History and ethics are tied together, have an inextricable relationship. And in order for us to do better, we have to acknowledge that the way we produce scientific knowledge in and of itself is something that's contributed to how we run society, how we design society, how we construct relationships between people, between people, institutions and resources. If we want to do better and ensure that these things are equitably distributed, then that means that we have to intimately know the problem, sit down with the problem, try to understand how it works. Listen to the people who are most affected. Pay close attention to how something is going to play out and where communities are likely going to end up being vulnerable. And then looking at how do we distribute resources to different communities where people end up being in need. So it's it's generally assessment and a reflection on how we actually run our communities. And that's from the local neighborhood level to a larger local municipal level, all the way up to the state and federal. And this is the reason why when we have conversations about, quote unquote, decolonizing things, that we pay close attention to not trying to use that as a metaphor. We mean that quite actively. Decolonization, as Frantz Fanon said, does not go unnoticed. We're trying to transform relationships. In a lot of cases, that means somebody going to lose something. Somebody's going to lose power. But it was never rightfully theirs. Because if we're going back to the conversation about essentialism, it's about self-governance. Self-governance is about self-determination. If I am not capable, I'm told that I cannot define who I am. That is part of what defines the notion of oppression. I'm considered not capable. I am a quote-unquote lesser animal, incapable of having their own will. We're not giving people the room and the resources they need not to just live a good quality of life, but to determine their own lives. And that political ideology of the Enlightenment created a pipeline that led to kind of scientific innovation in the field of science that ended up leaving people cast aside in the recreation of that political paradigm. Yes. And in the context of like not only just scientific innovations, but who are the scientific innovations for and at whose expense? The field of gynecology came at the expense of enslaved African women who were experimented on without anesthesia. Some of these scientific innovations came at the expense of Henrietta Lacks and her family, came at the expense of the families of the black men who were experimented on the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. All of these came at the expense of other human beings. If we actually use the scientific method correctly and in an ethical fashion, we can likely come up with a whole series of innovations that do not have to come at the expense of other human life. It does not have to come at the expense of the quality of our environment. We don't have to necessarily destroy ecological relationships. But science, scientism, science as an industry, a tool and a method has been used to do that kind of work. 
So to call for decolonization is to call for a different type of use of science to change the relationships that we have to one another and to not deny self-determination to even any human being. Because there is no freedom to deny the freedom of another human being. That's the only freedom that we deny. You can't do that. But why isn't science ensuring that those type of decisions are being made within its industry, within classrooms and labs, with the way that we design new technology, right? The conversations that we have with political representatives, what we have with policymakers. So that kind of switches up the way that we do it. Like we have to do things differently if we want to make a different world. And unfortunately, the way we have conversation about the context of politics is limiting how far science can go with addressing some of our problems as a method, how, much, how so? methodologically. By denying that politics is actually at the heart of what we do, we also ignore the fact that our behavior has consequences, that the decisions that we make as scholars, as scientists, has consequences outside of our labs and our classrooms. For instance, if you're an engineer and you're concerned about the way the world is going, you're concerned about funding, you should have been concerned before. People were dying before. When we think about the way our products are produced and who they end up impacting, we have to take into consideration what role we play in the production of weapons of mass destruction, the production of of weaponry that ends up being used in order to further different mechanisms that are used for state surveillance, who it impacts. So in a lot of ways, when we keep acting like politics is irrelevant and it's outside of this, we're actually limiting how effective we can be in actually making the world a better place. Hmm. Because in and of itself, objectivity is about context. It's about validity. It's about having the information that you need in order to assess the conditions at a particular time and place. And those things are always moving dynamically, right? So the quote-unquote context of a thing is truly what's objective. But within that context, we always talk about objectivity as if it's apolitical. Objectivity is just some general thing. It's fixed and it doesn't change. That doesn't match life. It doesn't (laughs) like how life actually happens and actually doesn't even match the theories that we claim to use as scientists. Well, back to the field of science. I mean, you have well-meaning folks, let's say a marine biologist who wants to prevent certain species of fish from going extinct, or you may have a geologist in soil structure. And these kinds of scientists who may claim to fight racism, who may march in the Women's March, they say that they reject these kinds of forms of, of oppression. I mean, they're not as directly related as the field of medicine or or other fields. How do these kinds of fields that aren't directly related to, I guess, social science play into the idea that science may be an ongoing expression of colonialism? Well, that's the thing. Colonialism in and of itself, especially particularly when we think about settler colonialism, to settle and to take land and resources from people it belongs to, right? That includes the environment. That includes other forms of life. That includes the ecological environment as well. These things are still part of colonialism because that's part of what we use in order to produce commodities that are then sold on the market at a particular price to generate a profit for different industries and capitalists. Those things will always be a part of human politics and human relics because humans are involved in it. So in a lot of ways, we think that that's a little bit separate. It's not that it's separate. It's just slightly different. It's a different relationship, but it still applies. 
So when we have a conversation about trying to prevent one form of life from going towards extinction, that's within the context of Euro-Western settlement and resource colonialism. We can't escape that. The products that were produced, the people who were murdered and killed, who are oppressed, who are jailed at a higher rate, who are killed by the police at a higher rate, who are policed by the state at a higher rate than others, those things are all connected to one another. Even the theoretical, like we look at purely theoretical science, right? People who say, well, you know, my work is completely separate from that. It doesn't necessarily contribute, you know, making the world a better place, but it does. To produce human knowledge is something that contributes to the world that we live in. And it's also funded by the commons. People's tax dollars go into it. So as much as we like to separate ourselves from these things, we can't. It still has an impact on the nature of the world that we live in and the kind of world that we want to leave, quote unquote, to the next generation, to next scientists. Even though we have good intentions, our intentions aren't going to actually shape our outcomes. I can intend to do well and the outcome be harmful. And we also have to take a step back and be honest with ourselves and a little bit more self-reflexive, self-reflexive and self-forgiving. Because if you didn't know, here's an opportunity for you to know. Right. In a lot of ways, I think the March of Science actually opened up a lot of opportunities for scientists to start seeing themselves as part of being political actors, even though they participated in something as simple as a march, right? And everything was not done perfectly, but there were conversations that were had. People were speaking up about their experiences in the field. We found out about the way women were being treated, the way people of color are being treated, the way knowledge is being produced. There was a lot of conversations And I think those conversations can be a a kind of a growing ground for people to do better. Because if we take this and we learn about human history and how it's part of the conditions that shape the environment we do our work in, we can do something about the problems we have now and maybe prevent a problem from happening in the future. Hmm. And what will the field of science look like in a decolonized world? Will biological essentialism vanish? In a lot of ways, I would like to hope so. Because decolonization is all, it's a historical process. So it was, we move forward towards addressing the things that have happened within the last 600 years, the settlement and the stealing of indigenous people's land, as well as the systematic murder and form of elimination towards them, chattel enslavement, all these different forms of Euro-Western modernity and colonialism that we've seen. We want those relations to drastically change, but to not lose the context of the history. So I would like to look forward to a day where essentialism, if we have a conversation about it, it's a thing that's talked about in the classroom to teach children about what we don't want to do, what we don't want to do again. Right. The mistakes we do not want to repeat. So it's a futurist work, of course, but it's one that does not forget its history. Is pride the only thing that gets in the way of that? I think a good bit of pride and ego can definitely get in the way of it. <laughs> like, I'm human. I know that it has gotten in the way of me learning new things at one point in my life. And mm. I think a lot of people are terrified of admitting to themselves whether or not they've been participating in something that they've seen as monstrous, as like racism and patriarchy. Nobody wants to be the villain. Everybody wants to be the protagonist and the hero in their own story and how they tell the grand tale and narrative of their life. It's difficult work to admit to yourself that maybe that isn't as as true as you thought it was. Shay Kilmaclean is an activist and a Ph.D. candidate who studies the impact of intersectional inequality on human biology. His website is decolonizeallthethings.com. Shay, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Nothing says empire quite like a big old museum of other people's stuff. Julian continues the Science and Power Politics series tomorrow with a segment on natural history museums and anthropology. Hope you can tune in. We'll also be having a sad discussion about the most populous country in Africa going to the polls this weekend. We'll preview the elections in Nigeria. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Did you know that you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast at the iTunes Score, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to wbez.org slash worldview and click subscribe. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Char Dastin. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.